Well, this morning we are continuing on in our sermon series of Becoming Disciples, Following Jesus Through Matthew. Uh, We've been camping out in Matthew since uh, Christmas Eve, and we're going to keep on camping out here until uh, Easter. Uh, The the title here of Becoming Disciples is is the goal and the the vision of this series. Um, This seems to be Matthew's goal in writing this gospel, not just that we get smarter or have all sorts of Bible trivia in our head that we can recall and... uh, conversational par- or parties at conversa- or conversations at parties, right? Um, but that like we embody this sort of thing, that like we take these stories and the things that we see in Jesus and live these out in our flesh and blood, that we would actually become disciples of Jesus. And so um, that's been our goal throughout the series, and uh, that's our goal for this morning. So as we get ready to jump in this morning, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, we are grateful for this chance to gather together. Um, we're grateful for the gift of this community. And we're uh, grateful for this chance to um, uh, wrestle with the scriptures together. And so, God, as we uh, turn to the scriptures now, we uh, recognize that your spirit is here among us. And we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more into the way of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today is Transfiguration Sunday, which is like an actual day that's like designated on the the church calendar, much like Christmas or Easter. Um, And when I discovered this a few years ago, I found this to be a really compelling uh, detail because like, I don't know what your experience was, but like Transfiguration, the the story of the Transfiguration nor like Transfiguration Sunday was a, a day or a story that received a whole lot of attention in my upbringing. And yet... Somewhere along the way, somebody felt like it was significant enough to include in the church calendar every year. Again, much like Christmas or Easter. So every year as uh, Transfiguration Sunday comes rolling around, I find myself feeling a bit like intrigued. Because like, you, you hear the story and you're like, ooh, there's some substance here, right? Like there's a little bit of weight to this. Like there's a lot of layers to, uh, to peel back here. But every year when I come to this text, I also find myself feeling a little bit terrified because you read it and you're like, ooh, there's a little bit of weight here, (laughs) a little bit of substance here. There's some layers to work through, right? And maybe you feel that uh, this morning as uh, you heard the the text being read and maybe you're feeling a little bit intrigued and maybe you're feeling a little bit terrified. And if that's the case, well, hopefully you would consider me good company, but maybe you're in good company here, right? And maybe we can uh, jump into this text intrigued and terrified together. So let's do that. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1, we read, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Here in the opening line of the story, uh, Matthew is giving us like a big warning sign because he tells us of the location in which the story is taking place. He tells us this takes place up on a high mountain. And all throughout the scriptures, mountains are these sacred places. These are places in which revelation happens. These are places where the the veil between heaven and earth get peeled back. These are the places where heaven begins to touch earth, where heaven kisses earth, where heaven collides into earth. And it's on the mountain where God reveals God's vision for us as God's people. And so Matthew begins with this big warning, uh, telling us that this takes place on a mountain, letting us know that it's about to go down, and it goes down in the very next verse, because we're told, and he, meaning Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And so in a moment like that, we discover the exact location of Clark Griswold's house from Christmas vacation, when his wife Helen finds the switch that everybody's been looking for. Five of you understand this reference. Ah. 
And the Christmas lights on his house come blinding everybody around them, right? And so here, Jesus turns into like the embodiment of the sun, and the disciples are left blinded and bewildered by what's happening here. And the poor disciples continue to get uh, batted around a little bit here, because very ne- in the next line we read, suddenly there appeared with them Moses and Elijah, who have been long dead, by the way, talking with him. And here, like, we have Moses and Elijah, like, the who's who of the Bible. Like, if there's a Mount Rushmore of the Bible, like, Moses and Elijah are included on it, right? And for these good, young Jewish men who are following Jesus, they most certainly would have, like, grown up um, with, like, this deep awe and respect of Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet. Like, these two figureheads that lead these uh, traditions within the scripture. And here, with this dazzling Jesus, are Moses and Elijah, And so uh, Peter's response here makes an awful lot of sense. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And you know, we we give Peter a hard time often, and we say things like, oh, Peter, Peter speaks first and then thinks later, right? Like that sort of thing. But like, come on. Come on, this makes sense, right? The, the who's who, the Mount Rushmore is in front of him. Like, of course, like, he doesn't know what to do. So he says, like, let's build a monument. Like, let's honor this moment. This is a good thing to be here. And yet, like, this doesn't appear to be the purpose of all of this. Because we read that while Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so while Peter's got his blueprints out and he's trying to figure out how to build these dwellings, God so rudely interrupts him, right? And says, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. If we're paying attention to Matthew's story closely, this isn't the first time that we've heard these words. Because all the way back at the beginning of the story, before Jesus has even begun his public ministry, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And as he's coming up out of the waters, we're told from the voice of God that this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. But this time it's different. Because it doesn't just end with whom I am well pleased. It ends with this command to listen to him. And at this point, the presence of of Moses and Elijah begin to make a bit more sense. Because again, we have Moses and Elijah, these figureheads, the who's who of the Bible, the Mount Rushmore of the Bible, the great lawgiver and the great prophet, these two traditions that run parallel throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And here they are witnessing to Jesus, like giving their nod of approval to Jesus, almost as if they're like passing the torch to Jesus, saying, you've listened to us, you've obeyed us, you've followed us, but now we're passing the torch on to Jesus and he's the one to listen to, he's the one to follow, he's the one to obey. We had a similar sort of moment happen uh, in pop culture recently. Now, similar because, you know, you can't compete with Moses, Elijah, God, and Jesus, right? But this, uh, this example that popped up recently uh, was from one of our heroes here in Northeast Ohio, the one and only kid from Akron, right? Uh, LeBron James. Uh, recently, uh, LeBron James became the all-time scoring leader in the NBA, which I know like three of you care about, but it's important for some of us, right? So he scored more points in the, uh, in the NBA than anybody else. And this was a, a huge thing because uh, this record was set something like 40 years ago by a guy named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and nobody thought that anybody could ever touch it. And so this happened just a few weeks ago, and it was this really beautiful moment. Like, 
LeBron scores, and like the crowd goes nuts. They stop the game, and they have the ceremony at half court. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who also played for the Lakers, who LeBron now plays for, comes out on center court. Yeah, I get teary. Why am I, am I teary? This is basketball. It doesn't matter, right? But like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar takes the ball that LeBron scores with and holds it up to the crowd and passes it on to LeBron. As if to say, like, I was the guy. I've been the guy for 40 years. But now you're the guy. Everybody's looked to me. Everybody saw me as the figurehead. But now it's you, man. Like, you get to take this and you get to, like, lead us into the future. And again, this isn't like Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and God, but like, I think we get the, the sense of what's happening here, right? Like Moses and Elijah have been the guys, right? They've been the ones leading the way. They've had the authority. They've been the ones that we've listened to. And here they are saying, it's no longer us. It's time for us to pass the torch. We hand this over to Jesus. Jesus is the one that leads us. We are to listen to Jesus now. This seems to be like the point of the story that uh, the transfiguration seems to point to this. The presence of Moses and Elijah seem to point to this. That, uh, as Paul puts it later on, that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Like, to see, God, or to see Jesus is to see God. And so God puts this, like, stamp of approval and gives us our marching orders and says, listen to him. Now, at this point, the disciples have been batted around a good bit. And so, of course, we read, when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. Because, you know, like, I've been overcome by fear with a lot less than, you know, God speaking uh, audibly, right? I'd be overcome by fear, too. But it seems that for the disciples and for us, that it's important to recognize that, uh, like, this isn't the end of the story. That... uh, we are not to like set up shop in this place of being overcome by fear. Because again, the, they, meaning the disciples and us, have just been giving our very marching orders from God's very self. And those marching orders are to listen to Jesus. See, to have a revelation is to have a responsibility. To, um, to, to glean some sort of insight, to glean some sort of knowledge, to become aware of something carries with it an obligation to live in light of that. And we see this happening all throughout our culture, but it often carries with it this negative sort of energy, right? Like, we, we're, we're aware of the skeletons in somebody's closet, right? The skeletons have built up so much that, like, they come tumbling out, and so we have to live in response of that, right? Like, this is the whole, like, energy behind the, the cancel culture, right? Which I'm neither affirming nor critiquing because that's a very complex, loaded thing, okay? Um, but, like, this seems to be the energy behind it. Like, we have a revelation about somebody, and so now we have a responsibility to live in light of that. So that means, like, we don't buy their products. We don't support them, right? Um, but it always carries with it this negative sort of energy. But this seems to be different now in the story of the transfiguration with Jesus because it doesn't carry negative energy. It carries positive energy behind it. Like, this isn't skeletons barreling out of Jesus' closet, but it's the fullness of God barreling out of Jesus' closet. And now that we've seen this, now that we've witnessed this, like, we have an obligation to live in light of that. Throughout the story of the transfiguration, we've seen the transfigured Jesus. We've seen Moses and Elijah witnessing to Jesus. We've seen God saying, this is my son. This is the revelation. And then God caps it all off just to make sure that, like, we don't misunderstand and says, listen to him. The responsibility that we have in the midst of that. Now, I think that uh, the implications of this uh, get lived out in, like, two major ways. The first one would be uh, to talk of, like, a revelation 
of Jesus. So like when we come into some sort of knowledge of Jesus or awareness of Jesus or encounter or experience of Jesus, and this is one of those things like it's, it's hard to unsee it once you've seen it, right? <laughs> it's hard to unexperience it once you've experienced it. It's hard to like pretend it didn't happen once it happened. John's gospel tells us of a story of where uh, Jesus is in this extended teaching and we're told that uh, it's a difficult teaching. Like he's not pulling any proverbial or metaphorical punches because Jesus is a good Mennonite, right? Like they're not actual punches, but like he's just like letting people have it, like just very plain teaching and getting into like the heart of like what it means to follow him. And like people push back and they're like, Jesus, this is a difficult teaching. And like he, he keeps leaning in and then he, we get to a point where we're told that because of this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with them. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Like Jesus has just let them have it. And like everybody else leaves, but Peter's like, we can't unsee what we've seen. We can't unexperience what we've experienced. Like we're, you're it. Like we're going to follow you, Right. They've had a knowledge and awareness and experience and encounter of Jesus. And they've come to see this as a gift. Paul, uh, in his letter to the Romans, describes uh, this way. Like, the, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Like, for those of us who have had this revelation of Jesus, like, this is a, this is a profound gift. And the way that they would have understood Paul's language of a gift in the first century is so different to the way that we would understand a gift today. Because today we get a gift, and it's like, it's a free gift, right? There's no strings attached. Um, But in the first century, that wouldn't have been the case at all. In the first century, to receive a gift is to uh, have this obligation to act in reciprocity, uh, to reciprocate that gift, to receive a gift, and then to, like, return a gift in kind, and so uh, we see this in the theological goldmine that is the show The Office, right? Um, Dwight Schrute, who is this rather um, socially complicated individual, right, uh, wants to take down Jim, which is the premise of every show. And so he, uh, he decides that he's going to do something nice for people so that they owe him one. And so he starts doing all of these elaborate gestures so that people would owe him one. But he runs into his own match named Andy Bernard, who comes from this highfalutin culture and says, like, you give me a present, like, boom, thank you card the next day. You give me a meal, boom, the dish is returned to you the next day. And so what emerges is this entire scene of Dwight doing these nice things for Andy, but Andy foiling it by doing all of these nice things back. And so it becomes all of these ridiculous things of, like, cleaning each other's glasses and pulling out chairs so that they don't owe one another something, right? This is a ridiculous example, but it shows like this, this economy of reciprocity, if you will, right? And this is how it would have been in the first century. To receive a gift would have been to have this obligation to return a gift in kind. And so when the first century readers are hearing that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, they might have thought about it in this way. Like to be given the gift of life by God and Jesus is to give our life back as a gift to God through Jesus. And the way that we give our life back to God through Jesus is through this process that we call discipleship. Like becoming an apprentice of Jesus, following Jesus, learning from Jesus. Dare I say, to quote God's very self, listening to Jesus. To have a revelation is to have a responsibility. The second implication of this, uh, I think, is what we might call like a revelation from Jesus. Um, I've shared this story many times, um, 
But uh, when I was in grad school, I had this growing sense of just like feeling theologically homeless, which I know many of us in this room have had that experience. But like when you want to be a pastor, that's even more troubling because it's like, eh, I don't know where to like even set up shop, right? And so like I, I found myself like praying about this a lot. Like God, I, I want to be in a, a, a tradition that like I can feel authentic in. And uh, at one point uh, while I was in grad school, a buddy of mine who grew up Mennonite uh, stole a confession of faith. Yes, you heard me. Stole a confession of faith from his church and gave it to me. And uh, I read it cover to cover, and I had this moment of like, ha, I'm a Mennonite. <laughs> and this was really exciting. Like, I, I, I had this moment of like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Mennonite. Like, I found my home. But then I had like this fear of like, huh, I'm a Mennonite. What does that mean? Like, I had this revelation from Jesus. Like, I really believe that. Like, I'd been praying for this moment. And I found myself incredibly relieved because I knew what to do. But I was really terrified because I knew what to do, right? <laughs> and how many times in our life have we been praying, hoping for, longing for some sort of clarity, guidance, direction, discernment, wisdom, only to get that and have this feeling of like relief mixed with terror, <laughs> right? We have this relief because like we know what to do next. But we have this terror because... We know what to do next, right? <laughs> to have a revelation is to have a responsibility. And oftentimes that, that, that sense of responsibility, again, whether that be a revelation of Jesus or a revelation from Jesus, can leave us feeling overcome by fear. And I find so much hope and so much peace in the next line of the story because we're told, as the disciples are on the ground overcome by fear, Jesus came up and touched them, saying, get up, and do not be afraid. The disciples have just had their entire worldview just like exploded, right? And they're, they're on the ground and Jesus comes up, touches them saying, get up and do not be afraid. I don't know how you are when you're like overcome by fear, but I leave my body <laughs> and I just like start spinning in my head and I just kind of stand there like this, right? That sort of thing. And I'm struck by like Jesus's intentionality to like come up and touch them. Because I find when I get caught in that like fierce cycle, like the best thing for me to do is like to do something with my hands or like go to the gym or like move or have like somebody that I love and trust like put their hand on my shoulder. Like it brings me back down to reality. And I'm struck by Jesus's like attention to this, to like bring them back to the moment. And he says, get up. And I don't think it's like a condemning thing. I think it's a reminder like, hey, we're not setting up shop here. This isn't where we make our home. And then he says, do not be afraid. Which is like, okay, easier said than done, Jesus, right? Like, how in the world are they to not be afraid in light of everything that they have just witnessed, in light of this revelation that they've, been, they've had? And I think the how is answered in the next movement of the story. Because we're told, as they were coming down the mountain. Who's the they here? <laughs> Peter, James, John, and Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't send them down off the mountain of revelation to sort by themselves to sort out the, the responsibility of this on their own. But rather, Jesus comes down the mountain with them. And I think the same is true for us. That Jesus doesn't send us down off the mount of revelation on our own to sort out the responsibility on the other side by ourselves. But rather, Jesus comes down the mountain with us. And so my friends, uh, whatever revelation you may be sorting out today and whatever um, 
fears you might have in light of that. Uh, know that like the responsibility isn't yours to, to figure that out on, its, on your own, but rather that Jesus himself, both in his spirit and Jesus himself, in the community of Jesus that we call the church, comes down that mountain with us, journeying with us, helping us live and embody the way of Jesus as we attempt to become disciples. Amen.